As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Periodically, our archaeologists and anthropologists discover more evidence that ancient folk on whatever continent they lived had elaborate systems of sacrifice. There were so many things that happened to them over which they had no control. Things they could not predict were about to happen to them. It could be weather, too much rain, not enough rain, too hot, too cold. It could be animals that prowled in the night or attacked them in the daytime. It could be some marauding troop, uh, tribe who lived not far from them. It could be simply sickness and death. When these things they could not control happened to them, they thought perhaps they could appease the gods who must be in control by offering their most valuable possessions. If they had found a rock that they thought particularly beautiful, or they had chiseled a stone into something they cherished, they might offer it up to the gods. When that didn't work, they offered their animals. Uh, their most beautiful little lamb, a calf, or a full-grown bull. And if that didn't work, then they began to offer up human sacrifice. Sometimes the life of an enemy, but sometimes the life of one's own family member, even one's own child. Now, thank goodness, we left that sacrificial system way long ago. Most parts of the world have not had human sacrifice or animal sacrifice in hundreds of years. But Jesus is today in this text dealing with people who continue to sacrifice portions of themselves thinking that's pleasing God. What I mean by that is we do still have people who indulge in self-flagellation, who beat themselves over the back or in their foreheads thinking somehow or other this is pleasing God. Every year at Easter, we see on our television somebody who's had nails driven through hands and feet and been raised up on a cross to be willing to take up the cross as Jesus did. That's not what he was talking about. He was not encouraging that. God does not love us more because we are miserable. It's just as valid to pray at 8 o'clock in the morning as it is at 3 o'clock on a cold stone floor. Being miserable is not a pleasure to God on our behalf. Sacrifice, uh, so minutely counting out the leaves on herbs that they owned, and yet missing the bigger picture of suffering, lonely, lost humanity. Let's take a look at this text. First of all, Matthew begins this story by saying, As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man sitting at a toll booth. For years, scholars have struggled with the fact that he says this was a man sitting in a toll booth and his name was Matthew because otherwise Matthew is taking this right from Mark's gospel. It's word for word exactly as Mark had it. Mark's gospel was written first. 
um, he's copying Mark, and yet Mark says the man's name was Levi, and Matthew says, well, no, his name was Matthew. And so scholars have said, well, maybe he had a double name, Levi Matthew or Matthew Levi. And other scholars say, no, that's not true. Back there in the first century of this common era, Jews almost never had double names of that sort. Dr. F. W. Baer says what this means is Matthew didn't really care what the name was. What Matthew was trying to emphasize was the part about Jesus saw a man sitting at a toll booth. And he knew that all tax collectors were suspect, that tax collectors were assumed to be raking and skimming off more than they should have been. They were ostracized. They were outside the camp, if you would. And that Jesus had come to talk about the kingdom of God. And God's wanting all of his children, or as many as he could possibly get, into the kingdom. He saw a man sitting in a tax booth. And he walked over to speak to him. Do you read kudzu? I've been encouraging you to read kudzu. Doug Marlett has a strip in the Tulsa world every morning. The featured person is a reverend, a preacher. He has a big black hat on. No matter what he's doing, he has this big black hat on. And he deals with a lot of things that preachers deal with. One morning this week, I was having my breakfast. I'm reading kudzu. And here's the preacher down on his knees with his big hat saying, Oh, Lord, I do believe you called me to be a fisher of men. But I want to throw all of mine back, he said. I've had days like that. I've had days like that when the ones I was catching were not the ones I wanted to keep or take home with me. In fact, when I call our prospects, when I call visitors to our church, so often I think, we can help this person. And it's really wonderful when I think, this person can really help us. This person can really help us because there's so many whom I think maybe, maybe we can help this one. This is one little fish whom God loves. This is one for whom Jesus came, died, was raised. This one is very important to God. Jesus says to this man, come, come with me. We Methodists do a lot of talking about grace, and rightly so. For ten years, I taught Methodist doctrine at Phillips Theological Seminary here until they got a United Methodist professor who could teach Methodist doctrine. Um, and when I would get right down to the end of the semester, be talking with these students who were about to go before the Board of, of Ordained Ministry, I would say, now, if you get sort of flustered and confused, just make about every third word of your next answer be grace. Grace, grace, grace. Boards of ordained ministry love grace, so do a lot of talking about grace. The danger with that, of course, is that we do not hear the second part of the gospel, and that is that Jesus saw the men at the tax booth and cared about him, but he asked him to get up and move away from it and come with him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, God does accept us where we are, but he also loves us enough not to leave us there. Uh, grace comes where we are, but grace asks us to move. The Wesleys talked about those justifying moments in our lives where we feel with all our heart that we've been set right with God again by God's grace, 
But that moment is the beginning again of the process of sanctification, where grace makes us more like him who is the sanctus, the holy one, the set-apart one. Our behavior becomes more like his behavior, not like that of the world, but more like him. Come. Come with me, he's asked. Carol Knapp has written about growing up out on the West Coast and from the time she was a little girl hearing about the Mississippi River but simply never having seen the Mississippi River until she and her husband were transferred to upstate Minnesota. And she said not long after they had moved there, neighbors said, hey, we've got something we might do that's fun on Saturday. Uh, we're going to go to this beautiful little lake and see the headwaters of the Mississippi River. And she asked, in Minnesota? Well, yes, they said. The Mississippi begins in Minnesota. And she said, they took us to this beautiful place. And on my 47th birthday, Carol wrote, I walked across a log over the Mississippi River. That in the northern part of Minnesota, the Mississippi is so narrow, somebody put a little log across it and you could walk all the way across the river. And they further told us that one drop of rainfall takes 60 days to go down that river to the Gulf of Mexico. She said, sometime later, I got to see the Mississippi just before it empties into the Gulf. There are places in South Louisiana where it's more than a mile wide. And on those days when I feel like I'm just a drop in the bucket, I think about the fact that I'm one little raindrop, maybe falling way up there in Minnesota, but that God can gather me with others and bring me to that large, large river. He asked me also to come and follow him. Third thing, I've been pointing out to you this whole year that our translators, and I believe the New Revised Standard Version is the best translation on the market for us English-speaking folk today. The United Methodist Church has said so. Uh, our books of worship, etc., are printed with the New Revised Standard Version. That this one combines best both accuracy and readability. But the translators do, in fact, leave out a little word that Matthew uses a lot. They think he uses it too much. And like an English teacher who tells you you use the word very too much, they think Matthew used hidu too much. And so they've left it out in many places. The old King James kept it in, and I think there are times when we need to see it there because I think Matthew was trying to say something. Hidu is translated, behold. And in the old King James Version, this 10th verse begins, Behold, it came to pass that many other tax collectors and sinners came to dinner with Jesus. It says sitting in our translation. There's a little letter there. And if you look down at the footnote, it says, well, in Greek, it really says we're reclining because people lay down while they ate. You know, they leaned on one elbow and stretched their feet out away from the table and ate like so. So these people were reclining with Jesus at the table. They had seen his initiative and moving toward Matthew and his asking Matthew to come and follow him and they sensed that there was something there important to them as well that maybe he would treat them the way he was treating Matthew and they showed up for dinner and guess what? He did treat them the way he had treated Matthew. That all were invited to come to the table. Come to the table. 
Sue Monk Kidd has written in her book last year called First Light. But she and her husband were on a vacation in the Smoky Mountains. They'd made a reservation at a beautiful lodge up in the mountains, arrived late in the afternoon, got their things into the room, and decided they would go out on the porch and watch the sun go down and feel the fresh breezes of evening coming on. They went out onto the front porch where they'd seen big rocking chairs, and they started rocking and watching the sun go down and feel the fresh breezes come in. And as they sat there, another couple came and sat down in rocking chairs three and four, and another couple came and sat down in rocking chairs five and six. And she said, as we rocked, I suddenly realized that all six of us were rocking together. And I mentioned, hey, look, we're all rocking together. And one of the men said, well, I'm a scientist, and there's a word for that. It's called entrainment. If there are insects chirping in the backyard, they will fall into rhythm with each other. If there are frogs croaking in a pond, they will fall into rhythm with each other. And if people are sitting on the same porch in rocking chairs, in time they will rock in rhythm with each other. And Sue wrote, is that what it means that we come from our different rhythms? Some of us taller, some shorter, some thinner, some rounder, older, younger, sit in our rocking chair and begin to rock. But in time, we rock together. In time, we rock together. Matthew, come, come with me. Others came, others, others, reclining at table with him, listening to him, sharing fellowship with him. This would get Jesus into lots of trouble, the fact that he acted as if tax collectors and other sinners were important, as if they were children of God, as if they were important enough that if necessary, he would die to eat with them, to be with them, to call them to have them respond, to move from where they were to become more nearly what God had in mind when he created them. Number four. Jesus said to these who criticized him because of those with whom he ate, you need to go learn what this scripture means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, Life is not found in how many different things you can deny yourself. This business of denying yourself didn't mean making yourself as miserable as possible, going around with a sad face all the time, trying to convince others that you were terribly dedicated. This business of denying yourself meant putting God in the center of your life, putting yourself out for the well-being of another who becomes in that moment the center of your life, Uh, not just denying yourself pleasures of some kind or other, sacrificing sacrificing the joy, the beauty, the meaning, the significance of life. The only problem with this little verse is that Matthew is using the Septuagint. And if you turn to this scripture Jesus referred you to, you will read a translation from the Hebrew. And there's a difference. Remember that after Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, and Alexander the Great had swept around the Mediterranean world, Uh, there were more Jews who could read, write, and speak Greek than could read, write, and speak Hebrew. And so their scriptures were translated into Greek, and that translation is called the Septuagint. 
And we can tell that Matthew has in front of him Mark's gospel, because he copies whole paragraphs sometimes without varying even a word. He has in front of him a document, we believe, that the Germans called the quella, the source, because he and Luke have whole paragraphs of teaching material, mostly parables, that are not found in Mark's gospel, not found in John. Uh, that third source. But the second source he had was the Septuagint. And we can tell he's using that Greek rendering of the Hebrew Scriptures because every time he quotes from the Hebrew Scriptures, he's quoting the Greek of the Septuagint. But you see, our scholars today can go back to the Hebrew, and when they go back to the Hebrew, they find that this Greek word is not a perfect rendering by any means of the Hebrew word. The Greek word here is E-L-E-O-S is the way we would write it has a rough breathing mark over it, so it's sort of helios, helios. Uh, and it's translated for you and me as mercy. Good word, but it translates a Hebrew word chesed. And in the 39 scrolls of the Hebrew scriptures, that word is used more than any other to describe the very nature of God. And it is usually translated for us in English as never failing love or steadfast love that people communities with whom God has made covenant have never fully lived up to their side of the bargain and that God has always lived up to his side God has always been faithful to the agreements that he has made always remember this comes from Hosea Hosea was a prophet with a runaround wife. She was unfaithful to him. So much so that when he began to prophesy, to tell people what their troubles were, he used his wife as an example. He said, you're like Gomer. She runs around on me. Uh, she sleeps around on me. In fact, he said, I got one child that I've named not loved and the other one's named not mine. Remember him, Hosea? He comes right down to the end of his work and says, But God loves Gomer, and God loves Israel, even in her sin. And God loves you. But what God really wants from you is what God gives you. And that's chesed. It's steadfast, never failing love. That's what he wants. Not this judgmental nature that draws circles that keep other people out, that delight that others don't get into the kingdom, but communities that try to win as many as possible into their community, which is seen as a part of God's great big community, the only real family of the only real God. One that really matters. Sue Monkkid has told another story in her book of last year that she had flown into Atlanta trying to make a connection to fly on home to North Carolina. And shortly after her plane landed, uh, a freezing rain hit Atlanta, and she started listening to the announcements. They were saying, if this does not stop quickly, we're going to have to close the airport. And in fact, within a few minutes, it was announced the Atlanta airport is iced in. There will be no more flights out of Atlanta tonight. Sorry. So she called a brother-in-law who lived there in the suburbs of Atlanta and said the airport 
airport has been shut down. I cannot get out of Hartsville tonight, maybe not even tomorrow. Um, I wonder if I could spend the night at your house. And he said, of course, get the commuter train. Our streets out here are already glazed themselves, but I think I can get there to pick you up. So she got on the commuter train and started riding out into the suburbs of Atlanta. And she said, I was feeling really sorry for myself. Here I was just an hour from home if my plane had taken off. In an hour, I wouldn't have been home. And instead, here I am going out to my brother-in-law's house when I need to be at home. And everything's iced in. I may not get home tomorrow or even the next day. It could, it could be terrible. And she said, I'm aware that the little train is stopping and people are getting off. And it's stopping and people are getting off. And finally, she said, there are only three of us left. And one was a woman sitting right across from her who was crying. She said, I saw her eyes welled up full of tears, and she'd blink occasionally, and another big old tear would run down her cheek. And I could tell she was looking at me, wanting me to say something, so she could tell me what was wrong, and I didn't want to hear it. So she said, I just looked away. And every once in a while, I'd sort of peek around, and she'd be looking right at me. And she'd blink her eyes, and another tear would roll down each cheek, and so I'd look away again. It finally got to my stop, and I got off. The next day, Atlanta had ice and snow, no planes taken off. And the next day, more ice and more snow, no planes taking off. I sat there in that house, frozen in, and all I could think about was that woman. It's all I could think about. And the second night, I had a horrible dream that she and I were in the same rowboat. She was sitting on one seat and I on the other. She was looking right at me, and her tears were filling up the boat. I started bailing as frantically and furiously as I could, but she was crying more than I could dip out. And then I discovered in my dream that if I looked deeply within her eyes, she quit crying. And every time I'd look away, she'd start crying again. The boat would start filling up. And every time I'd look deeply into her eyes, she'd quit crying. A joy shared a sorrow born makes all of us understand all the greater the love of our God and that which we're supposed to have for each other.